0: iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, David Schwartz of the
0: Museum of the Moving Image, and tonight's guest, Dan Fung Dennis.
1: This is really an amazing film, uh, one of the more en- engrossing documentaries or films about war and its aftermath that I've seen. Um, I'm wondering if, well, f- could you just tell us a little bit about, about what the film is? I mean, this audience hasn't seen the film, our podcast listeners haven't. Could you just describe Helen back again?
0: Sure, thanks. <laughs> um, I've worked for a number of years as a photojournalist in Iraq and Afghanistan, mostly for Newsweek and New York Times. But I felt that after so many years of war, my still images weren't having any impact, that society had become numb to images of war. We would seen so many. And at the same time, the outlets I was working for weren't really devoting much space and coverage to this conflict. And so I knew I had to move into a new medium. And so I, I developed a, a camera system based on a stills camera. Um, and documented a very large offensive that I knew could swing the war one way or the other. And that was in July of 2009. And 4,000 Marines were being dropped behind enemy lines. Uh, This was the largest helicopter-borne assault since Vietnam. And I asked to go with Echo Company 28 of the 2nd Marine Division because they were the ones that were going the furthest into this uh, stronghold. And they were actually being dropped 18 kilometers behind enemy lines to seize a key canal crossing. And shortly after landing, uh, about 130 men in this one location, uh, we were surrounded and attacked from all sides. And the fighting really focused around this pile of rubble that became known as Machine Gun Hill. And the fighting was extremely heavy. Um, in my years of, of working there, that this was one of the most dire situations I've ever been in. One Marine had been killed by the end of the first day. A dozen had collapsed from heat exhaustion. Almost all of us had run out of water. Um, and that's when I first met Sergeant Harris, when he passed me his last bottle of water. Um, and I followed his platoon further as they pushed into this, this stronghold. And I saw that he was this exceptional leader. He had done two deployments already to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and it was extremely courageous. Um, And I had no really intention of making a film. Um, I I just knew this was an important story to cover. Um, And I didn't know to actually be about one Marine um, and his wife uh, until about six months later when he was shot uh, during an ambush. And I didn't know he had been shot until the Marines were getting home back to North Carolina. They were stepping off the buses and doing a homecoming and reunion with their families a very emotional scene um, when I realized that Sergeant Harris wasn't there and I asked Where, where's Nathan? And they said he was hit two weeks ago. Um, so I called him up. He was just being released from the hospital. He had undergone half a dozen surgeries, had nearly bled to death from the gunshot wound um, and it was in extreme pain and distress um, from leaving his men behind, also feeling very guilty. And he invited me back up to his hometown of, of Yadkinville, North Carolina, a very, very small town and he introduced me to his friends and family as this guy was over there with me. And so instantly, I was accepted into this very rural Baptist community. And I essentially lived with him and his wife, Ashley, uh, during his recovery. Um, and that's when I got to know Ashley, his wife, better. And and she she's this angel, someone that's always caring for him, someone that's had she quit her full time job, become um, his caretaker.
1: They were high school sweethearts, right? High school yeah.
0: sweethearts, they'd been married for five years, um, and, and she was his support system. And it was about what she had to go through at the same time, um, and the burden that the military families have to carry, um, as well as, as these returning troops.
1: Yeah, so, uh, and so the film really moves, in a way, back and forth between these two different locations, the front in Afghanistan and then what's happening at home. So tell us a a bit about Nathan. He's not your typical war hero. He's a real interesting, kind of riveting personality. uh, But he's very conflicted, very, you know.
0: Yeah, he had been trained from a young age to be a Marine. His dad um, had these aspirations for him, trained him to shoot um, when he was very young, trained him to fight. He became a champion wrestler in high school um, and and knew that he was going to become a Marine. And... When he joined, he had this very, I think, typical attitude of these of Marines, these alpha males that just want to go out there and hunt, and he he was one of them. And he was promoted very quickly through the Marines um, because of, of his sort of ex- um, ability to lead others and stay calm under, in very difficult situations. Um, but I think after he'd gone through one or two deployments, he, he began to realize that it's much more difficult. Um, it's very different from sort of your young, boyish, romantic views of what war is. It's extremely tough to, to go through these experiences and it changes you as a person. Yeah. So by the time his third one rolled around, he had matured somewhat. Um, and the third deployment, he really just went out of duty. It was his orders. And he 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 sort of confided that he wasn't he didn't really want to go, um, but he had to. Um, and it was the second to last day on his, his deployment out there that he was caught in this ambush. Mm-hmm. And he had, was leading a patrol down this one area where they had always been attacked from. They had turned a corner and a machine gun opened up at very close range and raked through his position and shot him in the hip. Um, but he continued to lead the battle after that that was the kind of man he, he is uh, he, he still took control and, and sort of was able to fight back even though he was bleeding to death um, and then he just he, he talks about lying on the ground there and looking up at the sky and and thinking whether he was ever gonna leave and just to stay calm and keep his breathing very steady so that he didn't go into shock um, and but by the time he did get medevaced out. He had lost so much blood that um, he suffered a traumatic brain injury. Hmm. And so when he gets home, he, he's in, in extreme pain from this gunshot wound, destroyed his hip. But he's also dealing with the psychological transition of coming back into a community that has very little understanding of what he's just been through. Yeah. Um, that's v- it can be very isolating. Um, there's extreme disorientation. Um, and your body's in the state of a kind of emotional numbness from being exposed to so much combat. Um, and, and so he's, he's trying to learn his new role of, of coming back, of, of the frustrations of trying to find a parking spot in Walmart. Um, and those, those kind of things drive a lot of men back into the field because it's almost simpler out there. Yeah. You, you sleep, you walk, you fight, and you do it again the next day, and you have this very strong sense of purpose and mission Whereas back at home, the everything seems truv, trivial and mundane, yeah. um, and I think he shru- struggles to reconcile that.
1: Uh, yeah, so I mean, at the core of this this film is this psychological portrait. Um, of him and his wife, um, but also the way that you film in Afghanistan I think is amazing. I think this is a real uh, remarkable piece of cinema, of filmmaking. Uh, the Time Out New York review that's coming out this week uh, compares this film to Kubrick. Um, you know, Kubrick made some great war films, Pass of Glory and Full Metal Jacket. Um, could you talk a bit about your, your visual approach? Because it seemed like you were really trying to create an experience that's going to draw the viewer in and, and be a a powerful cinematic experience.
0: I knew that um, the camera that I used, the Canon 5D Mark II, was the first tool that would allow photographers to shoot video the same way they shot stills. You could convey the same aesthetics, you could uh, use the same methods of simply being an observer, of letting events unfold in front of the lens with very little direction or, or intervention. Um, So I I, I continued working the same way I did as a photographer, but simply shooting moving images. And that transition took quite a bit of time, um, because there are all sorts of other aspects of making a film that a photographer uh, doesn't have that same sort of toolkit. Um, But the idea that a still image has a lot of power, it has the power to shake people from their indifference. And i had been deeply influenced from war photographers from from Vietnam, from Bosnia, who showed us the brutality of what, what happens here and as their reminders of mistakes that we shouldn't repeat. And so it was, it was this work, this body of work from these past war photographers that um, motivated me to try to contribute to this tradition. And so when I started moving into to video, um, I wanted to bring all of those values with me. And so the the camera system I built was this Canon 5D and some custom sound shotgun mic, a wireless lav mic. And all of that was mounted onto a Steadicam-like device. Hmm. And so the weights on the bottom equal the weights on the top. There's a handle where the center of gravity is. And when it's balanced and um, you're using it correctly, you can be running, the Marines can be running, and you can still get these steady, smooth tracking shots. Which are typically only associated with, with Hollywood kind of Kubrick films, yeah. uh, which which have large vests that they wear very heavy. But this small, lightweight rig allowed me to shoot in very difficult situations in, in the dust of and hundred and thirty degree weather of Helmand.
1: Well, there are ambush scenes that are I mean, where you're you know, it's clear that your life is on you know, not just the soldiers, but your life is on the line and uh, you know, we're seeing these scenes that are quite, you know, beautiful in a way in terms of their filmmaking, but we're there in this incredibly dangerous situation.
0: Yeah, and a lot of the ideas I work with is, is just trying to immerse viewers into yeah. this story, to, to give them a, a visceral and experiential view of this, of what it's like to be actually be on the ground there in Afghanistan and what it's like mentally to come back and transition back into the society. Um, so it is very psychological. It's very personal, extremely subjective. I bring in a lot of my own experiences to be able to tell Nathan's story. And and so it is, I think, with the technology, I'm able to combine the power of photojournalism with the tradition and narrative of documentary film.
1: Powerful. Uh, powerful use of sound. I mean, I should also mention that you have a really... Uh, strongly built soundtrack that really works with the, with the real sounds. You're not like making up sound effects. It's, uh, you're, you're manipulating the sounds a, a bit. But
0: Yeah, it was very important to me to only use audio that I collected in the field. I didn't want to insert any sound effects or, or orchestral music that wasn't yeah. there. And so I had two sets of audio. One were these very human emotional sounds of crying or cheering. And then another set of very metallic warlike sounds, metal crunching. And I would slow those down in post-production to 2% and 4% to give these really low drones. And I would underlay them under certain scenes to give a sense of the emotions that I couldn't otherwise convey. Um, a lot of those emotions are are when, when you come back, of that alienation, isolation, and a numbness. And so those sounds were a way for me to convey convey those feelings.
1: Yeah. Um... I wanted to uh, just introduce the other main character in the film, which which is Ashley, because I think, um, you know, we see Nathan as somebody who who, um, is just so conflicted and so bitter, in a way, from the experience. And um, his wife, Ashley, really, really stays with him, and it's kind of amazing to see how, like, her attitude... And all this and how she deals with it, you know, because you expect her to just not be able to cope with it. But um, I, let's just run that, that clip um, with Ashley. He
0: gets so mad. Like, it, it just, he turns into a different person, almost. It's like, I don't even see my husband. He, it was almost like somebody had taken over him. Like, I could look in his eyes and it wouldn't even be him. They were like just soulless almost. I don't know if that makes any
1: sense, but he doesn't really become anybody but just rage. It's just rage. Was that where you got the title for the film from that scene?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ashley, I mean, she is this patient, patient, wonderful woman who is always by Nathan's side. And They've been married, I guess, seven years now. And they're still very much together. Um, Nathan's an active duty Marine at um, the Wounded Warriors Regiment in Camp Lejeune. Um, and Ashley's learned to deal with with Nathan through through just learning by through experience. After Nathan got back from his second deployment from Iraq, from a Fallujah, he was experiencing these extreme bouts of rage in the mornings when he'd wake up. He would tear apart the room. He would scream. And then he would forget it. He would have amnesia. And when Ashley would bring it up to him later in the day, he wouldn't have any recollection of it. And this continued for weeks. And Ashley just, in the end, learned to wake him up very gently and just be really calm and just slowly bring him into the day. And he wouldn't go into these rages. Hmm. And every deployment is different. Every time he comes back, he has some different response. and And I think it's different for everyone. Um, because you are coming from this world of, of life and death of blood and dust to one to to one that feels like they're at the shopping mall and and so there's a lot of different emotions there's a lot of different things that are happening that even even those that come back aren't even really aware of that they're going through and it's it's very different from operating as a unit of leading men of knowing exactly what's a, like your, your mission um, to one where you're you're having to deal with your things that are inside of you, your thoughts, your feelings. And that's, that's quite difficult for these, these men that have been trained to push through everything. Mm-hmm. And so Ashley really is this, this um, more than just sort of a support network. She's this cushion for him to land on when he gets back. Um, and she, she's tired. She's worn out. She has to really deal with a lot and put up with him. Um, but they're still together, which is, <laughs> which is
1: good. Okay, let's, uh, if people have questions, we can take some questions from the audience. Did you edit the film yourself? Uh, no,
0: I had the privilege of working with Fiona Otway, an extremely talented editor. Um, and I'd seen her past work in another film called The Rock and Fragments, and I just contacted her out of the blue. I uh, started showing her some of my work. We started talking about it. Um, and we ended up spending six months editing this film. We had over 100 hours of footage, and she watched all on her own first. That took about a month, and then we just sat down and we talked, and the whole process was really an unpacking of our representations of what war was. I think there's this very glorified, mythical, romantic version of war that is often portrayed in, in, in most media, and then there's this brutal reality of it, that often isn't shown or or talked about. And so it was separating those two. What was real, what was mythical, um, and what our own kind of personal projections of war were. And, And she was the one that... I knew I had this structure of going back and forth between Afghanistan and North Carolina. And she was the one that blended those two worlds together. And so we overlay a lot of these scenes, and you're not even quite sure sometimes which one you're going into, and it just drops you back and forth uh, to really show that this fighting doesn't stop when these men return home. It continues on, but in a very different way. Um, and, and so, yeah, it was, it was Fiona who really helped craft, craft the narrative and the structure of the film.
1: Hi, I was just wondering, you talked a lot about how your own bias and subjectivity was in the film, and did you have similar feelings that you know, Nathan did coming home and being in Afghanistan and you know, being that your life every day um, and verse
0: coming back to you know, American culture and reality and what it was like for you? Nathan and I actually never sat down and looked at footage and talked about it. He essentially had to trust me to tell his story. Um, and, and so there are a lot of scenes where I think I'm bringing in my own subjective personal experience of what I felt coming back home um, and so there may not be certain moments where he's thinking this or having a flashback here but they're sort of representative of sort of the overall feeling of what it's like to come home um, and, and so Nathan and Ashley didn't really see any footage until it was finished they saw a few clips here and there um, I brought them up to New York. We saw in a big screening room just the three of us. It was very emotional, very very difficult for them to watch it. Um, but at the end when the lights came up, they looked at each other and they kept saying it was perfect. And I think they're, they're, one of their main critiques is that this is only an hour and a half and they wish it could be 20 or 30 hours because there's so much more that they've experienced. Hi, just wanted to ask, um, How do you think your role as a filmmaker was perceived by the troops and the people of Afghanistan? I think there's quite a bit of distrust between the military and journalists. I think that's healthy. But once you go through some very difficult situations and you show that you're willing to go through the same risks that they are, and you go through these traumatic experiences, they learn to trust you and and you trust them. And Nathan and I became very close, and I stay in touch with a lot of these guys that, that were on this operation. Um, and, and so, yeah, it is sort of, I think the intimacy I was able to get back in North Carolina was because I had been through this experience with him over there. And it would have been completely different if I had approached him as a documentary filmmaker, I wanna show your life when you've come, come back. He, he, I know he would have refused. Um, And so, these are very tight-knit units that live and train and fight together. um, And it takes time to really sort of become one of them. Uh, But there always is that separation. There is always that, just enough separation to be able to get some objectivity, but yet still experience what they're experiencing. Um, And as for the Afghan people, in this particular region, they had never seen Western forces. Uh, it was strongly controlled by the Taliban. Um, and so when the U.S. Marines landed, all the villagers fled. They went out to the desert um, during, during this heavy fighting. And they started to trickle in back to their, to their homes. Um, and so the interactions between the Marines and, and the villagers were, were critical. They, th- this was counterinsurgency. They were there to really win over the support of the Afghan people, to deny the insurgents any sort of Freedom of movement, um, and so I think they they would see me as as someone else. I wasn't a marine. I had a camera, um, but I was still in body armor. Um, and and it took it's important to me look to look somewhat different from the marines to show that I am a journalist that I'm there to tell tell a tell a story. Um, but they're they're so much more concerned with what's happening around them, this fighting, marines going into their homes, um, that they don't pay too much attention to me. Um, and so it is, it is different though when you're not working with the military. The military gives you a very incredibly good access, but to a very narrow story. And so you, I had to go through a lot of paperwork and over the years I knew how and which channels to go through to get that approval. And once you're approved, you have unfettered access. You can, you can travel to almost any base in bed with any unit um, and, and go on, on these combat missions. Um, and so there really is, no, it's un, unrestricted. There's no censorship. No one looks at the footage afterwards. Um, and, and so there is this amazing amount of access, but you see 100 feet around you, and it's hard to get a bigger picture. It's hard to tell the story of what the Afghans are going through, and it's harder to get sort of um, a bird's eye view.
1: But some of the best scenes in this film are those encounters between the Afghani people and the soldiers, you know, because there's so much distrust. You know, a lot of there are scenes where they, you can tell the Afghani's, they don't want the Taliban to be running the country, but they also are really distrustful, and you really see it in these encounters. They're almost there's almost a, a sort of dark comedy to them in a way.
0: Yeah, the Afghans are very much stuck in the middle. Yeah, they're they don't want to support the Marines because they know eventually they're going to leave but they don't support the Taliban either because they're, they were so harsh during their rule. And they keep saying they want to live their own lives and not get involved, but in the end they can't. The fighting's happening in their fields, in their homes, and, and they're a part of it. Mm-hmm. And so the Marines generally do want to help, and they say that. And in this one big meeting with all the village elders, this Marine captain says, we've come to help, help you to get rid of the Taliban, and goes, he has this long speech. And the first thing the Afghan elder says is, we want you to leave. And the Marine captain isn't quite sure how to react. And, and, and that, but that is the feeling, that when these Marines come, they bring more fighting. Right. Um, and, and so it is, there, it is this tough situation that they're really kind of stuck in the middle and, and don't really want to support either side. What kind of psychological effect did this have on your own personal views of the war and um, uh, basic yeah, I think I went through a lot of the same things that Nathan went through that same feeling of disorientation when you get back you 've come from this quite simple life of, of fighting uh, and you it's, it becomes routine and you you get quite used to it Then back here it 's these relationships it 's your work it's it's bills and that seems far more complex than everything back there um, and it also it also seems, doesn't, seems meaningless it all seems very trivial and so I had to sort of reconcile those same kind of things um, and I think I had to go through them to be able to tell Nathan's story as honestly and, and truthfully as I could um, so I do bring in a lot of my own subjective experience into this and the more time I spent there, the more I realized just how complex this insurgency was. It was hard to think of any prescriptions or of, of what we should do there because there were so many different factors and each province was, was different. Um, so it's, it's very complex and it's hard to make any generalizations over sort of the big picture politically. But in the end, I feel like the film is, is completely non-political. It, it doesn't really take a left or right and it's really the story of this, this one Marine and, and his wife. Cool. we have enough time for one more question, or two more? Hi, thanks for coming. Um, I was just wondering, you touched briefly on your experience as a filmmaker as compared to a photojournalist, and I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that as a filmmaker you're more embedded with the characters of the story you're telling. So can you talk about the relationship with the soldiers, with the Afghani people, just the relationships you formed while you were filming? Yeah, I think for both of them, the underlying fundamental is trust. You really have to have trust with who you're with and who you're photographing, whether it be for either medium. Um, and it's about communication. It's about communicating emotions. It's about commuting communicating someone's story. But the still image, obviously, is is this decisive moment. It's it's just one frame, and it's still a story. Um, and You're searching for very different types of elements when you're working with stills. It's a very different process when you think. And at first, I thought I could do both. I thought I could take pictures and and shoot video, but I quickly learned that it's it's a very different way of thinking. Uh, You have to sort of formulate the building blocks for filmmaking. You have to sort of anticipate what's going to happen, and know what to shoot to be able to later edit and work with it. And it is, a, it is a much longer process because you really do have to follow these characters for a long time and get to know who they are, whereas a still image, you can, t- you can sum up a story and you're looking for that one instant. Um, so it was, it was a transition,
1: and I, and I, and I quickly learned that they are very, very different ways of working. I want to ask you something, since you're using technology in a, in a kind of new way to get people involved to tell stories, it makes me think about this um, new project that you're, that's in the works, which I think will interest people who have iPads in the audience because you're, you're using, um, well I'll let, you, I'll let you tell about it, but it's, it's a really fascinating app that's coming out. Yeah, the,
0: the film gave me much more context and, and storytelling ability, but it was still this screen that was distant and I wanted to bring people even closer to these stories. So I'm developing an iPad app that takes extremely wide angle views with a new type of camera system. Um, And yeah, actually we could just load that up if you hit that C1. So it's called Condition One, and we're working with a a, a bunch of different filmmakers and companies to create this highly immersive content. Um, And so the idea is to capture the human field of view and then using Um, the gyroscope and the accelerometer on the iPad, you can start looking around. So I'm going to demo a video where it's going to look like the screen is moving, but also watch the iPad that uh, he's holding right there. Because he's going to be turning to the left, he's going to be turning to the right, and every motion that the iPad makes, the screen changes. So you have this ability to actually look around you within, within a video as it's playing. And so right now he's looking around. He's moving the iPad left and right. Uh, he's moving to the left now, so he's you can s- reveal different portions of the video. So it's this very interactive, visceral experience because you actually start feeling feeling like you're in these in these places and in these stories. And there isn't one frame, and so it completely breaks the the sort of rules of photography because now now you're controlling which way to look. And so, yeah, it is, it is something that you really have to get your hands on to actually get a grasp for it. Uh, because now you can, you can sort of get the sense that you're moving around, but until you actually can link it to your own movements, um, it's, it's something that seems quite foreign. It's actually closer to something like a first-person video game than, than anything else.
1: And, f- and so filmmakers will be um, making their short films just specifically for this app uh, with this new technology, right?
0: Right. So condition one is really software. We've yeah. developed the software to be able to immerse viewers into these films. So it can really be applied to almost any story that you want to feel like you're there in the first person. So we've, we've been on the front lines of Libya. This is in uh, southern Thailand where uh, the government is fighting Islamic rebels. Um, and, and so these are, these are stories that are conducive to being experienced first person. I just want to say thanks for doing the film.
1: Um, Combat training is very shocking to begin with, and then very intense and very intimate to form that bond. Um, What kind of training did you go through personally to prepare yourself to step into that environment?
0: A lot of it depended on my own initiative to be able to prepare myself for these extreme types of conditions. Um, and so I took these surviving hostile environment courses that are offered by security companies. That most of it is medical training, to be able to know how to deal with a traumatic injury. But then the rest is really just spending the time on the ground and, and, and learning while you're out there. Um, and, and so yeah, there is, I don't go through the same sort of training that the military does. Um, but I've spent enough time out there that I've gained my own experience to know how to, to, how to operate.
1: I think we're doing, is it one more? Yep. Yeah. We have enough okay. time for one more question?
0: Yeah, I was just curious with the new iP- the iPad app. Um, as a filmmaker, what you're photographing, you want the audience to see. Is there any uh, worry that if the audience has complete control, they might miss something? Yeah, it's an entirely different experience because as a filmmaker, as a photographer, I'm giving this very specific frame. This is what I want you to see. Whereas this, it's more like you're dropping someone into this this world. And it's up to them to see it. So they very well could miss something. And we find that people actually play them over several times to see what what they actually didn't see in the rest of the frame. Um, So it is very subjective. You end up, every person will have a unique experience when they watch the story. And if you try to compare, did you watch this movie, well, maybe they watch the same movie, but they have one person was looking this way and one person was looking this way. Um, so the rules of filmmaking are also completely changed. It's you have to shoot differently, you have to edit differently, and that's that grammar and that syntax is something that we're we're developing now, um, and really is this we feel like kind of a new visual language that we're we're moving into.
1: So the iPad app Contact One is launching in late October. Um, and I also should mention that Helen Back Again, which won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival, is opening Wednesday, October 5th at Film Forum, and then will be playing in cities around the country. Um, so it's really an extraordinary film. Good luck with it. And um, thanks so much for coming today. Thanks so much for having okay. me. Okay.